Welcome everyone. My name is Justin Bullock. Uh, we're doing a, another student-led, it's been quite some time, but another student-led podcast episode here with Public Problems. I have a team of uh, four wonderful students that we got to spend this semester together thinking about some of the myriad of challenges and opportunities that artificial intelligence in particular, but algorithmic decision-making more generally brings to issues of society and issues of public service. They spent the semester reading a number of topics. Like a good professor, I had them read some of my own material, uh, which was a lot of fun for me, of course, um, but also a couple of really interesting books. Um, one is by Brian Christian, um, looks at the value alignment problem more generally, which is going to guide um, some of their thoughts here today as well, along with Virginia Eubanks' Automating Inequality were two of the books that we spent a lot of time with. So um, what I'm going to ask the group to do, there are four team members. Uh, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves here at the beginning. Um, and then Alicia, oops, oh, see, I was going to botch it. I knew I was going to botch the order. Then Alex is going to start off uh, telling us a little bit of some of the lessons she learned this semester, but kind of in order in which you're going to present Alex, Lindsay, Alicia, and Dylan, why don't you just quickly introduce yourselves? Hi everyone, I'm Alex Waitman. I am a Master of Public Service and Administration at the Bush School. Um, I am on the policy analysis track with a concentration in environmental policy and sustainability. Hello, I'm Lindsay Gonzalez and I am on the MPSC track at the Bush School. Um, I am focusing on public policy analysis and I have a concentration in analytical methods. Hi everyone, my name is Alicia Ortman. I am also an MPSA student here at the Bush School studying public management and state and local government. Howdy everybody, uh, I'm Dylan Armstrong. I'm an MPSA student on the public policy analysis track and I'm studying education policy. Wonderful, thank you everyone. Thanks for introducing yourselves. And with that in mind, let's jump right in. Alex, I know uh, you're, le you're leading the crew today, getting us started. So share some of the major points um, that you learned around, I believe you're going to focus on some of the issues and challenges for education in particular. But uh, without spoiling anything, please uh, jump in and share what you have today. All right, well, I'm going to be talking about the algorithm problem by Brian Christian, uh, specifically his chapter on shaping. Uh, so according to Christian, shaping is how the reward system is strategically used in order to get the behavior that you want and not the behavior that you do not want from a person. Christian also refers to incentives as bonus rewards that serve to encourage certain behaviors. So basically Christian is saying that the reward system or providing individuals with rewards or incentives for, for specific actions that you want them to take is how you can shape or train people's behaviors. This concept of shaping uh, made me think about the education system in America or how students are socialized or psychologically trained to adopt good behaviors and habits. Uh, for example, students are rewarded for good behaviors such as being on time for class, contributing to class discussion, working quietly and independently, studying and doing their homework, making straight A's, etc. The accolades and good feelings that a student receives from these rewards incentivizes them to continue performing well in school, which is essentially instilling in their minds that if I do X, Y, and Z, then I'll be rewarded. The reward system, however, can be psychologically harmful. 
Uh, for example, if you are a student who didn't do as well academically, then you may feel unsuccessful, inadequate, or a failure for not having achieved the same good things that other classmates did. On the other side, if you are a student who is used to receiving rewards for good behavior, there comes a point in your academic career where you no longer earn these rewards for good behaviors. And so if you do the opposite of those good behaviors, you actually end up getting punished. So for example, in high school, if you're late to class, you risk getting suspension. At the collegiate level, some professors may punish students who are late or absent to class by deducting from their grade. So what's happening here is that behaviors are no longer being reinforced with positivity or bonuses, but rather they're being incentivized with negative reinforcers or punishments. Essentially, people end up reaching a stage in their lifetime where the reward is simply not being punished. Uh, so now thinking about all of this raises the question, how does reinforcing good behaviors affect students' mental health? So there are a number of ways that this can detrimentally affect students' mental health. Uh, for example, many school children become hysterical over not performing well. Uh, this hysteria stems from the constant stress by teachers and parents to make good grades, and it can even cause kids to inflict self-harm. Uh, it also teaches school children to think that they are slacking, being lazy, or should feel guilty for not wanting to strictly focus on schoolwork all the time when they want to do other things like hang out with their friends, play sports, or relax. These pressures and feelings of guilt can cause students to develop anxiety. And this is where we reach the university level where research has shown that the higher the degree that a student pursues, the higher the risk of developing mental health conditions such as anxiety, stress, and depression. Many of these conditions come with the constant pressure of having to be perfect all the time with your schoolwork, attendance and participation in order to impress your professors to make good grades and be worthy of good letters of recommendation. The reward system also undervalues individual values. Uh, for example, you may think that punishing students for bad behavior will motivate them to do the opposite. However, many students don't care about being rewarded for good behavior because they value other things like spending time with friends and family, getting work experience, and relaxing. And they value these things more than getting perfect grades or excelling academically. Therefore, punishing or not rewarding people for pursuing actions that you don't want them to take debases other things that are good in life, such as social relationships, self-care, and professional development. So everything I just discussed made me think, one, is shaping or training people to adopt or execute certain behaviors ethical when it can lead to pressures that affect their mental health and cause them to compromise or sacrifice their individual values or other good things in life? And two, should we be shaping behaviors in accordance with unreasonable standards and expectations when perfection is impossible to attain and is not valued by every person? So to connect everything to AI, humans are also responsible for the shaping or training of artificial intelligence tools. And so AI can be used to shape good behaviors, but in negative ways. So as I mentioned earlier, self-harm can be a way that AI can affect someone's psychological or even physical health by training that person to be a good student. Christian provides an example of a PhD student who actually used an AI tool to shock himself every time he got distracted from strictly focusing on his school assignments. Uh, and a tool like that can be very dangerous if it is applied to um, 
as a so-called training tool for school children, uh, particularly by their parents. Uh, on the opposite end of that, uh, AI tools can be used in a more positive way uh, to shape good behaviors or habits in students. And I actually thought of five ways that the reward system can be implemented in AI tools to be more of a support system for students. So for starters, AI tools can train students to feel good about their daily accomplishments. So whenever a student completes a task, there could be an artificial intelligence tool that says good job or congratulations, just to remind the student that they should be proud of the work that they accomplished rather than unsatisfied because of what they did not do. So second, AI tools can be used to train and remind students that it's okay to take breaks in order to refresh and recharge before returning to work. A third, AI tools can be used to train or remind students to prioritize self-care and not feel guilty about doing so, especially since self-care is so imperative to improving a person's mental and physical well-being. So fourth, uh, AI tools can be used to train students to recognize their strengths and weaknesses and encourage them to work on their weaknesses, but understand that doing their best is still, is still success. And lastly, AI tools can train students to be more social rather than isolated. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, students can be so caught up in schoolwork that they neglect to befriend their classmates. Um, and building social relationships are not only important for developing social or soft skills, but can also help alleviate mental and emotional health issues by allowing students to connect and realize that they are not alone in their problems and feelings. In the university setting, there are a number of ways that universities could utilize uh, AI tools to create better rewards for students and motivate them to improve their academic performance. So for example, universities can grant students who are doing well academically with scholarships or financial aid or points for using library services. Uh, these points could equate to rewards such as uh, free meals, gift cards, day trips, a day off from class, etc. Universities could also use AI to observe which students are struggling at certain subjects and offer personalized training, tutoring services, excuse me, tutoring services for those students. Finally, AI tools can be used to shape or train parental behaviors by demonstrating how to be supportive of their child's academic endeavors. Uh, changes in parenting behaviors can alleviate many of those stressors and pressures that harm a child's mental health. So from AI, parents can observe and learn the positive effects on their child for simple things like complimenting them for school accomplishments and trying their best, understanding their limits and knowing when to take breaks and relax, and valuing social relationships. Very nice, Alex. Thank you for the uh, for the overview and the ties of shaping in particular to education. This is, as you know, and we've talked about in this class, something that uh, reigns really true with me, the education example, and that if you really uh, reward an agent or a person in a particular way, um, it can create stress and anxiety. My, uh, my recollection of my PhD is uh, a lot of stress and anxiety uh, stepping up from the masters and the masters itself was a lot of stress and anxiety. And so uh, it's a nice example of if you don't, if you shape behavior with rewards in a certain way, you're going to systematically get some behavior. And what we find in a lot of the education system is when we use the tools that we have 
to shape behavior, we end up with often uh, serious mental health challenges. And this is something that uh, COVID, I think, has brought more to, to our attention. So thanks for highlighting that. And I think it's a nice way to highlight the dangers of using AI for shaping, right? You can imagine, I mean, the shocking example uh, the, that is that involves shocking, it's not just a shocking example, but it literally involves shocking, is one that we could see how these tools could be uh, in, used to encourage people to play by these metrics even more so, rather than thinking about how to shape behavior in a more holistic, positive way. And a lot of these uh, early AI tools really have these narrow goals of say, in produce, producing productivity or raising some score. And there are all kinds of potential unintentional consequences when you try to shape behavior in that way. And we also have the over-optimizing uh, kind of challenge when we are trying to shape something really specifically on one outcome that uh, people trying to over-optimize on that, for example, trying to get good grades or trying to impress their professors can really lead to bad behavior. And the true, the same is true of machine learning agents. If you have them over-optimize on one thing and trying to shape their behavior to over-optimize that one thing, they don't work as well. Um, it, has, it has decreasing returns um, to utility. Thank you for that, Alex. It's a nice, uh, a really nice overview. Much appreciated. We're gonna take a shift uh, away from education and away from Alex and turn our attention to Lindsay. Um, Lindsay, I believe you have a couple of different topics related, at least in particular, to how AI is used for decision-making within organizations and some of the challenges that that presents for public organizations in particular, if I recall correctly. So over to you, Lindsay. Right. So um, what Alex just covered was a really great segue into the way that the public perceives AI and um, its impact on the delivery of services within government. And so I was going to cover um, essentially public trust um, regarding AI and then also um, inequality because these are becoming extremely important topics as we begin to shift the conversation from a more academic to um, public conversation about the effects of AI on our daily lives. Um, and so to begin, I just wanted to cover something that's been talked about on the podcast before and also something that you've written extensively about Dr. Bullock, um, which is the shift in bureaucracy um, caused by the adoption of AI. Um, so shifting from street level bureaucrats into um, what's now known as system bureaucrats. And so this is really just um, AI either replacing human decision-making or collecting data that will then um, be used to make official decisions regarding the delivery of services. Um, and this is sometimes a cause for concern based on the different results that we've seen. Um, there are great examples in Virginia Eubanks' book and then also in uh, Brian Christian's book that detail the problems that might occur um, once we begin to use um, algorithms um, or AI within the delivery of services. Uh, one example that's written about um, that um, I know you covered, Dr. Bullock, is uh, profiling within the criminal justice system. Um, there's also predictive policing, criminal pattern, um, finding criminal patterns, and also facial recognition. Um, all of these are seen as a cause for concern because um, they're depicted as 
something that's like hyper-targeting different characteristics within individuals um, to kind of figure out whether or not they might in the future um, commit a crime. And um, overall, this is seen by some as the creation of inequality um, within the decision-making or the, um, the process of um, intake within a criminal justice system. Um, and this, of course, is also backed by um, the different discussions within Virginia Eubanks's book uh, when we look at the delivery of services and um, oftentimes the frustration or the disheartening um, results of trying to access resources, um, but either being turned away, different um, people being, um, they feel like they're at some point char uh, targeted for their different characteristics. Um, and this is either related to the programming of AI or the training data that is used to um, assess different people's situations to deliver services, um, like for instance, in the child welfare system or um, even with things like Medicare. Uh, and so overall we see a kind of uh, distrust within the delivery of services um, that are um, kind of based on uh, algorithms and AI. Um, and that leads to a kind of variability in the opinion of whether or not we should trust AI to make these decisions. Uh, and um, in, in regards to that, there is in some ways a way to combat this distrust or begin to um, kind of quail some people's fears um, because there are a lot of um, great results that come out of kind of um, automating um, street level bureaucrats. Um, but we also have to acknowledge the different problems that have um, occurred. And so I wanted to highlight a particular article that's called Towards Algorithmic Accountability in Public Services. Um, and this article is meant to gauge public opinion, um, specifically for those who are most impacted by um, these new technologies. Um, so these authors look at the way that people interacting with the child welfare system uh, are thinking about AI and also uh, those frontline providers, so child welfare workers. And within these interviews, uh, we do see that there is a level of distrust, so a concern for bias in particular um, for both the service users, those interacting with the child welfare service uh, services and um, those who are the frontline providers. Uh, and this bias, however, um, is only found after they begin to interrogate the uh, functions of uh, AI within the child welfare services. And so I think uh, an important point of this is that participants within like this study uh, or interview uh, begin questioning things like statistical models um, and their accuracy. They um, express feelings for the need of oversight. Uh, these participants also then kind of uh, begin questioning how different situations might be weighed differently. So these are all examples of the way that they, um, when informed about the way that 
AI works um, in their daily lives, uh, question and start pushing for algorithmic accountability. And that's what's also, um, that is also called for within um, different readings like Virginia Eubanks books, book in particular. Um, so pushing for algorithmic accountability um, is championed because it can um, begin to answer questions related to why different groups like the poor or people of color are disproportionately impacted um, or um, negatively impacted by the results of AI. Um, and all of this is related to AI and inequality um, because if we are to continue expanding um, the use of these services and um, improving them for the well-being of all people, uh, we need to essentially push for algorithmic accountability so that um, all people are equally served by these different um, machines. Very nice, Lindsay. Um, how much fun is it telling a professor about his own work? Is that stressful at all? Um... <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely felt like I had to go over that article a couple times. <laughs> well, thank you for incorporating it into the conversation and you... Yeah. You did an excellent job. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to highlight from uh, from an overview perspective um, is um, you really did a nice job of highlighting how there are opportunities and good opportunities for automating or using AI to accomplish some tasks within, uh, within public organizations and then some other tasks, maybe it's not such a good idea and it creates unnecessary harms or unnecessary risks. And one of the things I'm really hoping people talk, take away from our chat today is, is both an over um, fear and an over love, I guess, of the tools by themselves is not really the right approach. We really need to implement the tools when it makes sense and have a strong accountability structure built within organizations and with society to, um, to make sure these tools are used well. And we're going to make some some mistakes along the way. Um, so um, it's, a, it's a good thing to be careful about. And you have one other important thing that I just want to note to anyone listening, which is the inequality aspect. And this Eubanks really does a nice piece of this, which shows that, yeah, when we make mistakes, it turns out it doesn't really harm the wealthy or the well-to-do or the people that have other choices. When we do make, when we do uh, implement AI in ways that causes harm, it's more likely to harm those that have the least ability to protect themselves, which is something that, as a trend, we should be really cognizant of as we use more of these tools. Thank you, Lindsay, Alicia. I think that brings us all the way to you. We're halfway home to those listening. Two out of four, two great presentations so far. And I'm certain that Alicia will also have something interesting to share with us. Alicia, to you. Thanks so much for that introduction. Um, so really what we've learned through our time at the Bush School and through our time studying service delivery, through my time working in local government, it's pretty clear that empathy can make or break how good a policy is. So um, what we've really learned here um, through our time at the Bush School is to communicate often with the people who are affected by the work 
of a public servant and that public servants should be representative of the public that they serve. So the, the issue at hand here is that these are both things that AI can't do because AI is not human. So uh, the issue again, isn't that AI isn't human, it's that it, it doesn't understand the, the implications of the decisions that it makes. So we saw this in automating inequality by Virginia Eubanks um, in the example of when the welfare system of the state of Indiana was privatized and automated. Um, when this happened, thousands of people lost benefits, close to 300,000 documents were disappeared, uh, had disappeared. And um, this loss of documents was an increase of about 2,500%. So that's going to happen in any kind of large organization, but it got just so much worse when they, they automated and privatized this industry. So even though the system seemed inefficient to constituents before, uh, no one could really have predicted the negative impact that switching to this automated system would create. And this is really because AI is not programmed to care uh, whether or not people die as a result of losing healthcare and food. And that, that seems kind of harsh, but AI is just not capable of understanding the long-term implications of its decision-making. So yes, it, it is true that human error exists, uh, but so does AI error. And because artificial intelligence is modeled by humans, um, we saw this outlined by Brian Christian in the alignment problem, um, those who trained the Google Photos algorithm to sort photos could not distinguish the pictures between photos of gorillas and photos of black man, black men. And um, as of 2018, this hasn't been fixed. The only fix is that Google removed the word gorillas from the list of available tags. So they have still not, years have gone by, they have still not been able to train the algorithm to distinguish between these two very different things. Um, and, and clearly this is a long-term problem that is going to continue. And so, yes, bias has a significant impact on human decision-making, but like I said, humans program AI and this ends up further dehumanizing decision-making. So handing over decisions that will have a long-term impact on people's lives ends up decreasing the value of human life. So is this really considered an improvement if humans are dehumanized? Um, so, we also talked about how humans are nat natural imitators and imitating the emotions of others gives us this added layer of depth into understanding someone else. So AI can imitate actions, but they can't imitate feelings or emotions. And so how can we really, really expect artificial intelligence to make decisions for, for topics such as who receives food and who receives healthcare? Um, and at the end of the day, rational public servants make decisions based on current and future situations. Humans are also capable of taking their own future mistakes into account. We know we're not going to do everything perfectly every time. Um, but is, is AI capable of this kind of forward thinking? And as, as I come to a close, I really wanted to think about this in the way of as a citizen, how would I want my services to be delivered to me? Uh, for example, if I have a problem with my utilities, I'm not going to want to call a phone number and have a robot try and figure out what I want. I'm going to want to, at least for, for some issues in life, I'm going to want to talk to a human being because there's a chance that my situation may have happened to them and they know how to fix it 
and they understand me. Being understood is a very important human need and having that met by the people who are supposed to be providing your service delivery, I feel is very important. Thanks, Alicia. Yeah, um, you're, the note unit on there remind me, someone recently sent me a clip of uh, from Elysium, the movie with Matt Damon, where he's uh, trying to talk with uh, his parole officer and the parole officer is a robot. And he's trying to describe like, hey, my situation's different than the robot basically is like, shut up. It sounds like you're violating your parole. Um, and uh, that's, what, that's what that made me think of your example there at the end. So there's a couple things that you mentioned that I just want to highlight for the audience because it also overlaps with some of the some of my own work and what I'm interested in. And it's this idea that uh, AI systems can't empathize. They don't have the subjective experience that allows them to empathize in the way that humans do with one another. They don't have that type of reflective understanding, which is one of the things that really continues to separate our understanding of how machines act and make decisions versus how humans act and make decisions. And I think that's a really good like way of thinking about it for someone to decide, hey, which types of tasks does it make sense for a machine to do versus which ones that require a human to do? Basically anything that requires empathy or more humanizing efforts, um, and there's some subjectivity around that, having humans play a significant role in making that decision really, really matters. Um, whereas other types of situations where it's data gathering, providing information, providing input, making some more um, mathematical decision, it makes sense for an AI tool to use that. Um, but without this lack of empathy, these tools can be used at scale in mass to do harm. And, <coughs> excuse me, in my research, this has really got me worried about administrative evil, um, which is this idea that even without anyone purposefully using AI for those ends, just because of the types of tasks we use it for, it could end up dehumanizing people. And we have some really um, tragic examples of this already from how machines are used in warfare decisions. Um, and that, that trend could continue to play out for government services in a way that we should be really, really concerned about. Um, so thanks for that, uh, Alicia. Uh, it's a nice overview of some of the challenges. Much appreciated. I believe that brings us to Dylan to, uh, to bring us home here. Go ahead, Dylan. All right, thank you. Uh, so I'm going to be discussing a little bit regarding the need for regulation of these types of artificial agents, um, and then also kind of briefly describing the current, some of the current regulations that are out there, and then also kind of like broadly steps forward. Um, so my group members have done a really good job so far of kind of describing some of the different implications of these actors and kind of a need for um, the government to keep an eye on them and to regulate them. The only other point that uh, I think carries merit to be mentioned for the need for regulation is regarding data collection and the scope of it. More data is being collected on us than ever before in history, and people really are unaware of the level of data that is being collected on them. You know, when we sign up for an online service, the terms and services we all agree to are pretty much unreadable. Um, numerous, numerous pages long and typically written in language that isn't, you know, accessible to your average individual, very technically written, just we really have no idea um, the level of like data that's being collected on us and how it's being used. 
privacy data kind of falls under the same umbrella as terms and services. Um, you have to shift through a ton of different information and a certain level of intelligence to understand this. Um, and some of this, like a really clear example of how like the level of data that's being collected on us would be, I would say when it comes to like social media, um, a lot of people consider this product to be free, but if this product, if a product is free, you're not the consumer, you're part of the product. So these different organizations and like tech companies, you know, track what tweets you like, what you retweet, you know, what you spend time on and really aggregate all this data together to be able to sell ads on you. And I just don't think people really understand the full scope of the data that's being collected to then go in to selling your data that then gets fed into an algorithm to, you know, give you an ad that you'll hopefully click on and then hopefully buy that product. Um, so overall, there's just really so much data being collected on people and people just truly don't really realize it, um, which kind of lends itself to the need for regulating these types of artificial um, actors and agents. So there's two different um, current, there's of the, all the different regulations that are currently out there. There's two examples I'm going to briefly highlight. One's internationally based and one's domestically based. So internationally, we have the General Data Protection Regulation of 2016, and this was an EU uh, regulation. And overall, this law focuses on data protection and privacy in the EU and also in the uh, European economic area. Um, there's kind of two big points of this uh, regulation I want to point out. One is more for the uh, consumer side and one's more for the uh, like business entity side. So for the business entities, for those who are data processors, which are data processors are just anyone who pretty much performs any action on any data they have on you, regardless of whether it's automated or a manual action. Um, these actions and you know, whether they're collected, recorded, organized, just really anything relating to the data have to be done in accordance to seven different protections and accountability principles. Very broadly, these protections and accountability uh, principles work to ensure that the data processor are processing data like on the individuals with integrity and in a manner that is lawful, limited, and confidential. And then the other side of the GDPR is uh, the privacy rights. And these are eight different privacy rights that are guaranteed by the GDPR. And once again, these are more consumer-based of the individuals who are having the data collected on them. And these privacy rights guaranteed by the GDPR um, really work to establish a data collection system that is transparent, fair, and allows for consumer control with regards to their data. So kind of trying to really remove that kind of, I'll say like veil of ignorance that's in place with like terms and services and privacy agreements. So people really do know the data that's being collected on them, what's being done with it. And they have a right to have that data destroyed when it's no longer being utilized. And one thing that I thought was kind of interesting about this policy is while it's an EU um, regulation, this applies to anyone who processes data, like any processor of data that takes place within the EU you're protected by this. So even if you do not reside in the EU, if the company at, is active in the EU, they have to follow the uh, these regulations for their data processing. So moving away from the international realm to something more domestic based, um, in 2018, California passed the California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, this is a bipartisan uh, piece of legislation that work to give consumers more control over their personal information that businesses collect on them. 
Um, and this privacy rights that were secured for California consumers um, really came down to like, once again, knowing what information a business collects about them, how it is being used and how it is being shared. And that you have a right to also opt out of the sale of your personal information and that there is protections in place for non-discrimination for exercising these rights. So you can't be punished for saying you don't want uh, your personal information to be sold. Um, and then this piece of legislation was actually amended back in 2020, um, which really strengthened uh, the piece of legislation. First, it created the California Privacy Protection Agency, which is just a dedicated agency specifically implementing and enforcing these privacy laws. So really adding some additional backbone and teeth uh, to this legislation. And just once again, really, it restricts the time period that businesses have to hold on to your personal data and to get in line with these regulations. So once again, really ensuring that the legislation is doing what it's supposed to do in protecting people's data. And then, so those are the two uh, pieces of regulation that I wanted to briefly go over. And then regulation kind of going forward are kind of in two big buckets. The first bucket would be to follow along the lines of what the EU's done or what California's done. This could be mirrored you know, on a state-by-state -state basis or at the federal level. The other idea that I've seen tossed around that I think is personally fascinating is an AI review board. Um, and this would operate similarly to how medication must be reviewed by the FDA to examine the potential harm of medicine, that there would be you know, an accrediting board or just a review board to review different automated agents um, to see and examine the potential harm that could come at play from them so, and needing to you know, be accepted or approved before being implemented. And the only other noteworthy thing really to mention is even outside of government actors, there's a lot of non-governmental, whether that's you know, a nonprofit or a private entity that are examining in this. PwC has a practical guide to responsible artificial intelligence. Um, it's a really easy read, really, you know, ground level um, guide that just kind of walks people through how we can enter this realm or continue in this realm of artificial intelligence in a responsible and fair way. Thanks, Dylan. Um, I really appreciate you spearheading the conversation on regulation. Regulation is not always considered the sexiest topic, even of those that study public administration. So thanks for covering that. You do a nice job, I think, of of covering the main two pieces of legislation um, that are influencing the space, um, the GDPR and the CCPA. Um, and one thing I wanted to note, you mentioned uh, about a AI review board and continuing efforts. So uh, right now the EU commission is uh, working on updating its way of approaching data and AI. Um, and one of the things that's under consideration in their latest proposal is uh, our versions of review boards, training more professionals um, to sit on these review boards um, and have that kind of throughout the process. So I, uh, and in part of this process, along with some colleagues, we have argued for these types of things uh, for the EU. Um, so just putting that in the ground there that I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting way to think about how do we continue to adapt over time to respond to AI and data collection because any one sort of legislation that tries to regulate, regulate it specifically is often going to become outdated. Um, so we've had some success with things 
uh, like nuclear regulatory boards and some biotechnology stuff. And it seems like this is a space where we could use some of those models. So I appreciate you drawing attention to those things and for doing a nice job highlighting the current regulatory framework in particular, how a lot of the actual use of AI is used to collect a ton of data about us and predict what we will buy next. Um, and then maybe there's some other uses we could uh, come up with to, uh, for these world leading tools. Okay, so I asked the team members at the end here to uh, think back on what they've learned and what they've heard today and from their perspective uh, of what they were representing today um, and list maybe one or two things that in kind of final recap from our conversation today that they wanna make sure are the last things they, uh, uh, they send your way. And I'm gonna let them do that in the same order that they presented today. Um, so we'll start with Alex, any kind of final thoughts you would like to leave the uh, listeners with? Uh, absolutely. So first and foremost, uh, we need to reevaluate how we shape or train people's behaviors and consider how our techniques can be helpful. Uh, but more importantly, the ways in which these techniques can be harmful. Uh, and then the second uh, key takeaway I'd like to leave the audience with is that Artificial intelligence tools can assist in reshaping the current reward system to help shape or train individuals to recognize their achievements and, and enhance, excuse me, and enhance their self-worth. Very good. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Lindsay? Right, so I wanted to encourage people to begin thinking about the ways that we might uh, organized around the idea of algorithmic accountability, um, whether that's just by beginning to have conversations with people who have um, experienced problems with AI and the delivery of public services, or um, actually going and doing work related to um, advocacy, um, but really just um, thinking about how our lives um, are impacted by AI and what we can do to begin improving um, the delivery of services that are um, reliant upon um, algorithms and different systems. Very good. Thank you, Lindsay. Alicia. Uh, yeah, so what I want to leave some people thinking about is AI absolutely can be beneficial um, in the sphere of governance because it can take a lot off of other people's plates. It could do a lot of work that can be done by a computer easily without having to be the job of somebody else. But we need to be able to distinguish what has long-term impacts and what is, for example, paper sorting. Um, what kind of decisions can an algorithm or an artificial intelligence make that will benefit and what kind of decisions can it make that can harm and dehumanize? So once we, make a distinction between the two, I think it's okay to move forward. But until we have definitions on both of those, there's that risk of dehumanization. Very good, thank you, Alicia. Dylan? I would just wrap up by saying once again, there's more data being collected on us than we realize. And even like, like our group and through our discussions, we realize as we're actively trying to study this. Yeah. So I would just say kind of 
<clears throat> be aware of that when online and with what you're seeing and what type of content and ads are coming your way as this is all driven by driven by the data they have that you that they have on you and they're trying to get you somewhere so just kind of while we're waiting for more regulations to come to protect us try to protect yourself and just be aware of the situation that's currently at play very good thanks dylan Thanks, team. It was a lot of pleasure going through these topics with you this semester um, and uh, learning more about the details of the ways in which algorithms and AI are already impacting society and already being used as part of service delivery. I share uh, Dylan's parting point here that it's my sense that most people have no idea how much data is being collected on them and have no idea how much algorithmic decisions are already impacting basically every major decision that you might make uh, and what types of decisions you might have as a consequence. So I encourage people to look into this themselves. We're also attaching some basic resources and some basic overview that you can see in the description of this episode. And um, thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much team and look, looking forward to sharing more information like this with y'all in the future.